Tom's Politicast. I'm Jim. I'll be your host today. Hope everyone had an amazing three-day weekend for Labor Day. Uh, hopefully, you didn't have to labor on Labor Day. And wouldn't it be ironic if a woman goes into labor on Labor Day? Wouldn't that just be, I don't know if ironic is the right word, but that'd be really interesting. I went, on, I went into labor on Labor Day. But anyway, hopefully you guys had a good time. I know that was cheesy. That was really weird. But it's just something I think about every once in a while. Um, but hopefully you had a great three-day weekend. Uh, it wasn't too hot or anything. And hopefully you guys had a good time. Um, we have a few things here to talk about today. So I'll be getting right into them because you never know how long it's going to take me to get through these. Sometimes I get off on a rant and then I have to quickly end as, uh, as, I've, as I've gone over. I think the last two weeks I went a little over. So just indulge me. Hopefully it won't be that way today. David Eggert uh, on his Twitter said that Governor Whitmer proposes spending $200 million in federal pandemic relief funding to replace lead water pipes across Michigan, where aging underground infrastructure was exposed by Flint's disaster. Utilities generally must replace the lines by the year 2038 under state rules that took effect in 2018. I have a question. I mean, I'm not opposed to fixing these water lines. I mean, they're, you know, they're in bad shape and they are killing people. The lead is killing people in Flint. But I'm just wondering exactly how much money was given to Michigan and the federal pandemic relief funds. Because this is now the third major thing that I've heard that she's going to allocate money from the federal pandemic relief fund to do. Uh, the first one that I heard about was when I went and saw Governor Whitmer in person, she talked about using that money to um, help the state parks and to build some kind of a waterway from Grand Rapids to um, the Grand River, um, and, uh, essentially to Grand Haven. And then she was talking about voting rights and putting that money into, you know, helping shore up voting and, and Lance, or not Lansing and Detroit and all those areas. And now she wants 200 million to go to the, replace the lead water pipes. I'm just not really sure how much money we have. And then I don't hear anything else about it. I don't know if these are just electioneering. It's what they call electioneering. Like, is this just her proposing things that she knows that the Republicans in the legislature won't actually take up, but it makes her look like a leader. This is what I want to do. And then she can blame it all on the Republicans. This is why we need a democratic legislature because I proposed all these things for the state and the Republicans refuse to move on them. That is a possibility. So it doesn't really matter how much she announced that she's going to spend because she knows it's not going to happen anyway. And she knows very few people, if anyone is going to sit down and count up the math to see if she can actually afford to do any of these things. So that's probably what's going on. But I just, I just wonder sometimes because I keep hearing we're going to use the federal pandemic relief fund to do this and do this and to do this. And, and I'm just thinking, 
there can't possibly be that much money. I mean, it's not a blank check that they gave us and just as much as you need. It was only a certain allotted money, and it just doesn't seem like there's enough to go around to all these projects. Um, you know, so I, I don't know. Um, I, I just wish that there would be some news outlets that would actually challenge her on these things. Um, but then again, if there was, she probably wouldn't call them anyway, because uh, Democrats particularly are getting very good at only calling on uh, certain journalists. Uh, and those certain journalists are going to be ones who are friendly to the administration. I've seen Joe Biden do this. He's always talking how he has a list. Like, I have a list. They've given me a list of people to call on and blah, blah, blah. You know, they call on the ones that are friendly. If you remember, it's not something that typically the, the Republicans do. I'm not, I'm not saying that no Republican does this, and I'm not saying that there might not be some people they would call on. But, but if you recall, Donald Trump frequently called on CNN and the Washington Post and the New York Times and all these uh, agencies that he called fake news. He constantly complained about their coverage, but he still called on them. And, and I think that was, that was very telling that he was willing to go in the fire, even though he knew he wasn't going to get a fair shake with this group. He still was going to answer the questions. And that's something that both Whitmer and Biden have not done is they don't, they don't call on, uh, outlets that they know are going to ask them tough questions or things like that. Now, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, frequently would call on Fox's, is it Steve Ducey or something? I, I can't remember. Peter Ducey? Um, I can't remember his first name. But, uh, and, and she gets into uh, back and forth with him quite frequently because he'll ask them tough questions and, and uh, you know, and, but I mean, that's to her credit that she actually does call on them. But but the president and our governor does not typically call on any reporters that are going to give them uh, who are going to question them in a harsh manner or call them out when they are lying or misrepresenting the truth. I'll put it I'll put it politely. Um, they typically don't. Even Like I said, even when I was uh, when I saw Governor Whitmer in person. She um, wouldn't take questions generally from anybody, but then her press secretary, or I, I guess, um, whispered something to her, and then she called on like two reporters. She's like, "Okay, I do want to call on this person and that person," but then she wouldn't she wouldn't answer any more questions. So, um, so I'm guessing probably that her press secretary told her that you know. To go ahead and call on these people because they're going to ask her friendly questions. And one of the questions I remember distinctly, one of the it was a, it was a woman there, and she asked about, and it was it was all framed as the Republicans are evil. I remember her saying, "How, you know, I'm I'm paraphrasing just a tad bit, but she she basically said, you know, how are you going to get these proposals, all these plans that you have through the Republican dominated." legislature who don't want to do anything to give you a win before the election. I mean, it was just, that wasn't the exact phrasing, but I remember her talking about the Republican dominated legislature and about how they aren't going to want 
to help her as it gets closer to her reelection. And I remember just thinking the way it was framed was almost like, you're wonderful, you're great, the Republicans are evil. How are you going to come back? These evil men who refuse to help you do these great things for the state. I remember that distinctly. I don't remember who the other person was that she called on or what question they asked because uh, this was several months ago, and I, I can't remember offhand. But they both seemed very friendly. Um, and then, you know, she wouldn't take any other questions. A lot of other people were – a lot of the other reporters were like, you know, Madam Governor, Madam Governor. You know, she's like, we're not taking any more questions. And uh, so anyway – uh, and, and I've seen Joe Biden do the same thing, where Joe Biden uh, occasionally, interestingly enough, I mean, I'll, you know, there were many traits. Okay, here's the tangent I didn't mean to get off on. But there are many traits that Joe Biden shares with Donald Trump. Joe Biden doesn't write mean tweets. And he doesn't get into back and forth with a lot of people, like with a governor or, you know, like Ron DeSantis. Um, or Biden made a comment about Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis responded back, and then Biden just kind of dropped it. So he doesn't get into the, like the fights, uh, verbal fights that Trump gets into. Like you know, Trump's motto is very much the Chicago way. I mean, if you ever watched the old movie The Untouchables, it came out like in '87, '88 with Kevin Costner and I think Sean Connery's in it. Sean Connery at, at one point um, is talking about the Chicago way of fighting. Like if, you know, if, if they punch you, you stab them. If they pull out a knife, you pull out a gun. You know, you, he said, that's the Chicago way. You know, you don't just take something lying down. If someone attacks you, you not only attack back, but you attack back with greater strength than they hit you with. And that's, kind of how Trump behaved, you know, um, you know, you, you attack me and I'm going after you and I'm not just going to tit for tat. No, I'm, I'm going to come after you with something stronger. And, uh, so, I mean, Biden's not like that, but Biden does share a lot of traits with Donald Trump. And it's like every trait that I don't like every trait that I didn't like Trump about Biden has. And that's, and that just annoys me. Because Biden has a quick temper. He um, holds grudges. I know he, everyone has this image that he's this kindly old grandfather and a doddering fool, although the part about being a doddering fool is, is true. But he, ha he holds grudges and he gets angry very easily. And so you've seen that a couple of times with him because he wouldn't call on people. And so then occasionally someone will yell out a question to him. And he can't take it. He hears it and he's got to respond. And his aides get upset. In fact, I have an article about that that I'll get into shortly about his aides and their response to Biden. But, you know, he has, you know, we remember the dog faced pony soldier comment. Um, you know, he got mad at some labor union guy who criticized. I, I, I can't remember what he criticized. This was during the campaign. Um, it was during the primary, actually. And some labor guy criticized his policy on unions or labor or something, and and Biden blew up at him, you know. And there's there's footage 
the media didn't show it, but it went all over conservative uh, Twitter and, and the media. And and he's yelling at this guy. He's cursing. He's like, you know, you don't know anything about me. Don't don't you dare criticize my record and all this. I mean, you know, so the media sometimes will catch him because it's somebody that he wasn't supposed to answer questions from, but they'll call out a question. He'll be walking away and he'll hear the question. He'll turn around and come back and he'll get real smart aleck with them. And then at least once he came back out and apologized later, it's like, I shouldn't have got angry. In other words, his aides got to him, but like, you can't do that. You cannot start yelling at reporters like that. But, you know, so, so he does have that quick temper, but he's uh, temperament wise. He's a lot like Trump. He's not like Trump in policies, but, um, but he just doesn't say mean things on Twitter and, and get into a lot of confrontations, but he's really very much like um, Trump and his press secretary is too. I mean, she got in that big argument with Fox's Ducey where, and I thought it was a legitimate question. He asked, uh, he asked Jen Psaki, how does Biden, how does Biden uh, thread the needle between being a practicing Catholic which he claims to be, that he's a devout Catholic, and yet he's pro-choice. It's like, how does he thread those two? If he's such a devoted Catholic, why does he go against the Catholic Church's ban on abortions? And I remember she got real flippant and just rude and didn't answer the question at all. Just she attacked him, verbally attacked him. I remember her making some comment about uh, it's easy for you, she said to this reporter, it's easy for you as a man who never has to worry about whether or not, you know, about getting pregnant and whether or not ha to have to abort your child. It's like you, you know, you have, you know, I, I think she used the word privilege, but basically, you know, you're privileged. And how dare you question whether a woman has the right to choose when you don't have to make that choice in your position, you know? Um, and I just remember thinking that that was not a, a bad question. I think that's a very legitimate question. How do you, how do you, how, how can both those things be true? How can you be pro-choice, but also be a, be a devoted, devout Catholic who believes truly in the Catherine doctrine, Catholic doctrine, you know? And then on top of it, she never answered the question. She just attacked the reporter for being a man and how dare he even bring up abortion when he's got male privilege and never has to worry about uh, making those everyday choices that women have to make about whether to have their child or abort their child. I, just, I mean, you know, so, you know, she's taking after her boss. I mean, you know, this is, I mean, the one thing I do have criticize, well, starting to say the one thing I criticize Ducey about was he should have asked Joe Biden that directly. But then I remembered that Joe Biden would never call on him. So so I guess he's got to ask the press secretary. But the one thing I will say about Jen Psaki that I appreciate is that she does call on Fox News, even though her boss won't. Um, if I had to find something about Jen Psaki to appreciate, I do appreciate that. That she calls on various reporters in spite of their political leanings or what they're going to write about her boss. 
It's more than Jen Psaki, and that's more than Joe Biden or Gretchen Whitmer does. So anyway, I think this is election engineering that she's doing, um, electioneering, not engineering, electioneering that she's doing here. I, I don't think she has any real intention of doing these things, but I think she's proposing them, knowing the Republicans won't do them, and then she can run against the do-nothing Republican legislature. And this is why we need the Democrat, blah, 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 you know, this is why we need to elect Democrats. And it all goes into her, her plan. Um, speaking of abortion, and no, I'm not really going to get into the Texas abortion thing because, honestly, I don't know enough about it. You, what you're hearing is a lot of uh, um, nonsense on both sides, exaggerations. Although I have to say it's less on the Republican side, um, but you are hearing a lot of exaggerations, particularly on the Democratic side. But there are some Republicans who are really excited about the Texas abortion law, and um, I mean it's a step. But it's not at all the silver bullet that um, the Democrats are making out to be. I mean, the Democrats are crying that Roe v. Wade has been overturned and all this. No, Roe v. Wade has not been overturned. Um, you know, if it was being overturned, I guarantee you the Republicans would be yelling from the rooftops. They would be so excited that finally they've overturned Roe v. Wade. The Republicans, except for. Uh, you know, Mississippi and uh, Florida, who have talked about possibly enacting similar laws that Texas has, the Republicans have been pretty silent around the country. You know, they're not, you know, they're, they're not, they're not doing a victory lap about it. So it's, it's not, I mean, it's a step in the right direction, but it's not a, uh, it didn't, it didn't end Roe v. Wade. And of course, you're also hearing from the Democrats saying that the Supreme Court made the ruling and all this. The Supreme Court did not make a ruling. All they ruled on is that they weren't going to take up the case and they were going to leave it to lower court. Um, that's all they said. They did not rule on it, so it did not abolish Roe v. Wade yet. At some point, they're going to be forced, if all these other states are doing this, the Supreme Court will be forced to take up this case. And then you might see Roe v. Wade be abolished. But right now, that's not happening. But the Democrats are crying. You know, they're pulling out their hair. They're screaming. I mean, it reminds me of election night 2016. I mean, you know, they're screaming out in the streets. They're crying, you know, sack and ash cloth and, you know, all this other stuff. I mean, they're going wild. This is the end. I mean, the Taliban are treating women better than Texas. And I mean, you know, they're just going on and on. I mean, it's not that big a deal. I mean, like I said, it's a step in the right direction, but my God, they're carrying on like, like the whole world is falling apart, and it's it's not. We have a long way to go before Roe v. Wade is overturned. I don't know if it will be, but there is a definite shot with some of these bills if they go to the Supreme Court. Um, I've told you before why I'm hesitant to think Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade might be overturned, but but you never know with with Republican majority, it might be they may they may not see it the same way and say you know there's a bigger issue here and that's human life and so I mean I I, I can't sit here and say it won't be overturned but I can't say it absolutely will either. Um, but we have a long way to go so I don't really want to. There's just a lot of misinformation going out there. I just want to tell you that. So 
I don't know enough about it. I haven't been able to find what the law actually says. I keep finding what the Democrats say the law does that they passed, but I haven't been able to find actually what the law does. So I don't want to go into a long discussion about it and then find out that I'm giving misinformation and that I'm fake news telling you all that this is what's going on and it's not actually what's going on at all. So, um, so even though that is a big story, I'm not going to touch it right now until I find out more information. But because of abortion, Governor Whitmer um, is supporting the repealing uh, sections of Michigan's PA, I don't know what PA stands for, 328 of a 1931 bill that criminalizes abortion and also criminalizes publications about it and contraceptions and miscarriage. So uh, the little that I know about this, this was in 1931, Michigan has been, uh, before Roe v. Wade, Michigan had abortions banned. Abortions were banned in Michigan prior to, to 1973, I think it was when Roe v. Wade was decided. And that was done in this bill, uh, 328. And so it not only criminalized abortion, but you couldn't make up pamphlets to promote abortion or to talk about abortion, basically. So it couldn't be an option that you could give women. Like, well, here are some options about what to do. Um, uh, it did ban discussion in schools and in things about contraception with which that one uh, I think maybe going a little too far. I mean, it might have been fine in 1931, but today I don't know if I'd support a ban on uh, talking about birth control because, I mean, I mean, I guess it depends on the kind of birth control. I mean, I don't know if our kids need to be given all the details about about birth control, but um, but certainly I don't I don't have a problem with the concept of birth control or anyone hearing about it. But definitely. So anyway, Governor Whitmer, because of the Texas abortion law, I'm calling it abortion law. I don't know what it's called. Um, she's now said that she wants to repeal this to legalize abortion in the state of Michigan on the off chance that the Supreme Court repeals Roe v. Wade. Because repealing Roe v. Wade, for those of you who don't know, it would not um, ban abortions across the United States. It would only make it would only allow the states to make the decision on abortion because prior to 1973, each state had their own provisions. So some states like California, Nevada, New York, I know for sure those three, possibly others, allowed abortion. But Michigan was one of them that had abortions banned. Texas was. And that's where it originally came from, was that Roe, I think, I mean, this is all pseudonyms, but she wanted abortion in Texas. They wouldn't allow it. So she took it to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said that, you know, she had a right to privacy. And so then it over, um, it nullified all the state laws because now it made it a federal issue. The federal government said it's a violation of her 
Fourth Amendment rights, and so therefore you can't enforce the abortion laws because it's a violation. So these laws are still on the books across the United States, like in Michigan, but they're just nulled because they're null and void because the Supreme Court said you can't enforce those laws. So if they repealed Roe v. Wade, then it would become a 50-state battle. Each state would have to battle on whether or not to make abortion legal or illegal in their state. Michigan would automatically, because we have a bill about it, would automatically ban abortions. So Governor Whitmer is now trying to repeal that bill so that abortion would be legal if or when Supreme Court um, repeals Roe v. Wade. Now, again, we have a Republican legislature. Now, I don't know. The Republican legislature has been really disappointing to me. So I really don't know if they would if they would support um, uh, repealing the abortion ban in Michigan. But I suspect they won't, but I never know. So again, I think this is another example of electioneering. I think she's going to make this an, a wedge issue about abortion, even though it's not uh, – it's not threatened here in Michigan. I mean, Roe v. Wade is still in effect as of right now. So, but I think she's going to make that an issue about a woman's right to choose and uh, and try to force the Republicans to take a pro-life stance. Um, and I think she's, I don't, I don't know, I'm not saying it'll work, but I think she's pretty confident that the people of Michigan are going to feel, you know, especially the women will come out and vote because they feel like their rights are being um, trampled on. So I think she's going to try to make it a wedge issue because it, it's, I, I don't see the Republicans moving on this, whether or not, whether or not they're pro-choice or pro-life. It's not an issue that's really pressing right now, but if she continues to talk about it, she will force the Republican candidate to have to denounce it and come out as pro-life. And then, and then she feels pretty confident that Democrats will rally behind her and especially um, Eastern Michigan where she needs to get those votes out. She needs to rally that base because if they come out, then she'll win re-election. So I, I kind of suspect that she's going to make this an issue. I don't see this as going anywhere. But again, I think she'll blame the Republicans and say it's their fault that it didn't go anywhere. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, let's see here. All right. Next article is from The Federalist. I love this paper. And the article says it's by a woman named Haley Strack. And it's from September 8th, 2021. So just not too long ago. The article reads, National Archives slaps a harmful content warning on the Constitution and all other founding documents. Before I saw this was from The Federalist, I thought this was a political parody like The Onion or one of those or The Babylon Bee. I thought... This was a joke. I mean, it just sounds like a joke. 
But no, it's very much real. Let me read you this. The National Archives Records Administration placed a harmful content warning on the Constitution, labeling the governing document of the United States as, quote, harmful or difficult to view, end quote. The warning applies to all documents across the archives catalog website, including the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence. Now, NARA, that's uh, shorthand for the National Archives Records Administration. NARA's records span the history of the United States, and it is our charge to preserve and make available these historical records, the administration said in a statement. As a result, some of the materials presented here may reflect outdated, biased, offensive, and possibly violent views and opinions. In addition, some of the materials may relate to violent or graphic events and are preserved for their historical significance. The NARA, which is responsible for preserving and protecting documentation of our American heritage, noted that so-called harmful historical documents could, quote, reflect racist, sexist, ableist, misogynic, and xenophobic opinions and attitudes, be discriminatory towards or exclude diverse views on sexuality, gender, religion, and more, end quote. And, quote, include graphic content of historical events such as violent death, medical procedures, crime, wars slash terror attacks, natural disasters, and more, end quote. Along with committing to diversity and equity, the NARA said it would, quote, work in conjunction with diverse communities and seek to balance the preservation of this history with sensitivity to how these materials are presented to and perceived by others, end quote. This isn't the first time the National Archives has catered to a leftist view of history. In June, the National Archives Racism's Task Force claimed that the Archives Rotunda, which houses founding documents, is an example of, quote, structural racism, end quote. The task force also pushed to include trigger warnings around displays of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, which are all in the rotunda. The warning is a blanket, blanket, blanket statement atop all documents and archive catalogs that link to a statement on potentially harmful content. As news of the website's warning circulated on Twitter, the NARO issued a standard response to those concerned by the harmful label on the Constitution. They said, this alert is not connected to any specific records, but appears at the top of the page while you are using the online catalog. To learn more about why the alert about harmful language appears in our catalog, please go to NARA's statement on potentially harmful content, Tweet said. Um, talk about a trigger warning. I'm about triggered. This just makes me mad. How did these people get in charge of this? How did these leftists get in charge of this? I don't think 
I don't think these people are replaced every time there's a new administration. So I'm not sure. So I, I, mean, I'd be, I might be wrong about this, but I don't think that when Trump left, Biden appointed all these lefties to the committee. I'm not sure. I don't think that's happened because I, I think this is not something that is, um, I don't, I mean, I think they're nominated possibly by the president, but, or, or maybe it's the Department of Interior or something. I don't know. So I guess it's possible that when a new administration comes in, they're replaced. I know that they're not uh, like a cabinet position. I know that they don't typically resign when a new president comes in, which is how our cabinet has done it for 100, 100 or more years. Um, when the new president comes in, the old cabinet resigns shortly before. And so the, the new president can put in his own cabinet. I don't think that's it, but it could be. But I just don't understand how these people got in charge of this. I mean, historians, which I would think would be in charge of this sort of thing. Um, I started to say they're not usually political, but that's not true. Um, it depends on the historians. Some historians are very good, which I admire those historians. They put their personal views aside and look at history. There are historians who are very slanted where, I don't even really call them historians, but they go into it with an idea like, oh, I'm gonna write a biography about Richard Nixon. I think he was a horrible, horrible man. So I'm gonna study history from the point of view that Richard Nixon was evil. That's not a true historian. They are a political person masquerading as a historian. Because a true historian would go in there with an open slate and say, I'm going to look at his entire presidency, his entire life, and and give an honest assessment of the man and his time and his presidency. Uh, you know, the good and the bad. Yeah, they're not going to make him out to be a, you know, to deify him, make him godlike. But they're also not going to rip him apart. They'll tell, you know, where they think he, where he was wrong, they'll admit he was wrong. Where they think he was right, they'll admit he's right. And they really let the reader make the judgment. You know, those, there are many historians like that. I'm not, I don't want to make it sound like all historians are political. Um, but then there are the subsection like uh, where you study women's history or black history. And they typically go in with a motive. We're going in to tell the story of how women have been exploited all this time. And so they go into it already with the idea of showing how horrible women have had it. They're not going into it with a blank, uh, on you know, uh, to use the term blank page, you know, and just seeing what history says or shows and talking about, you know, the reality of what our country went through because they're very specific. They're not just going to talk about the history of the women's rights movement, for example. They're going to talk about how horrible the women were treated. And I'm going to, you know, and I'm not saying you, you, you have to discount that because, I mean, there was a, a lot of prejudice that went on toward blacks, toward the Native Americans, toward women, toward the Chinese. I mean, toward the Irish. I mean, at some point, just about every, every group has at some point had, um, were treated poorly in the United States. I mean, it's it's a problem worldwide, but we see it in America primarily because we're always getting immigrants, you know. But you saw it, 
you know, the Germans treated the Jews that way. You see it in England right now, you know, they're treating Afghanistan refugees because they're not from there. So the people who are from there consider themselves to be Irish or they consider themselves to be German or they consider themselves to be English. And then you have these foreigners come in, you're not one of us. And so there's always some treatment. But in America, we've had that for a long time. It doesn't mean that we're a racist people. It just means that it's just it's just a common thing in America when you get when you, you know when all of a sudden you get a big influx of Irish people. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to say we don't really want you here. You're coming over here, taking our jobs. You're you know all these kind of things, and we don't want we don't want the Irish here. You know, and that'll go on for a while, and then it happened with the Chinese. It happened with Native Americans. It happened with women. It happened with black people. I mean it. You know, I mean, after 9-11 happened with Muslims, where people like, we don't want the Muslims here. After Pearl Harbor, the Japanese were rounded up and put in a concentration camp because, you know, they weren't naturally from the United States. So there was suspicion. We don't know any of these people. I'm not saying I'm not saying I justify, I'm not justifying putting them in concentration camps. But I'm saying from their point of view at that time, we don't know who we can trust. These All these people come over here. We don't know if they're plants, if they came over here to be terrorists, to destroy our way of life, we don't know. So, you know, so I'm saying this is a common thing. And so you need to look at the big picture of what was happening around. The United States and Americans don't hate Japanese people. But if you look at what was happening at that time, you might not agree, but you can understand why people were leery about Japanese people right after Pearl Harbor was attacked. And we're at war with the Japanese, you don't know you know, these people. So if you go into a Japanese history, the history of Japanese Americans, that's going to be your big focus about how racist Americans were against the Japanese. So you're already going in with a bias. So anyway, sorry, another tangent. So in this case, it seems like you'd have real historians who would do this. And a real historian would not be putting these things on here because they understand. I, I've heard it. I watched a, a, a special on C-SPAN about, it was actually about the presidents. They did one on each president and they started off with George Washington and they had a historian that I respect and I can't remember his name offhand now. I know his, I know his face when I see it. I think it's Richard Norton Smith and I really respect him. A really good historian, really good presidential historian. And they had a caller in there. The woman was a black woman. And she called in and she was angry. She said, how dare you? How dare you honor a man who owns slaves? How dare you? He didn't lift a finger to help black people. And this same woman who proposed to hate these founders tuned in every week. I mean, she complained about George Washington. She complained about John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, especially Thomas Jefferson. James Madison, because they all were part of either the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution, and none of them outlawed slavery, and some of them, like Jefferson and Washington, were slave owners. And she's like, how dare you honor these people who didn't, who had slaves and all this? And Richard Norton Smith had to explain to her that slavery is obviously an evil, but you have, you can't look at it from the 21st century perspective. You have to look at these people's lives in context of the time that they lived in. 
and many of them were very progressive for their time. Today, they seemed like racists. If you use 21st century morals and values, they seem like horrible racists. But at the time, they were very progressive when it came to black rights and slave rights. And they couldn't, there was no way they could, they could ban slavery. It just wouldn't have happened. They couldn't do it unilaterally. The only reason Lincoln could do it is because we were in the middle of a war and he had war powers that he could do it. He couldn't do it unilaterally. He'd have to go through Congress. And the, and the Southern senators and House members were not going to pass it. And there was more of them than there were at the North. So the president was helpless, regardless of their views on slavery. So he goes through and he explains to them, you know, that, that it would be impossible for them to have done it, even though they talked about it. They mentioned it. They, you know, um, and I, I can't remember everything he talked about with Washington, but the point was he understood that those, that things like the Declaration of Independence, you know, when it says all men are created equal, yeah, that's, that's what they meant. They meant men and white men particularly. They weren't talking about the Native Americans. They weren't talking about the slaves. All men are created equal. Today, we, we accept that as being a universal man, the mankind. All men are created equal. But at the time, yeah, it was very specific. But it was a very liberal document for that time. And he goes through and explains it, that you have to look at it through the majesty of its time. Instead of just saying the document was racist because it only applied to white men, it was sexist because it only applied to males. You look at, at that time, what this was the only country in the world that was breaking away from, mon from a monarchy and saying that the people were smart enough to rule themselves. You know, and so he has a majesty. He's a real historian. He has a, ma a majesty for the Constitution, for the Declaration of Independence. These people obviously are looking at it through a leftist prism of these people were evil. They were white racists and they were sexist and they were genocidal because they allowed the murdering of Native Americans. And, you know, they were, you know, and just going down the list. I don't know how those people got it. That's what my point. I don't know how these people got in charge of the National Archives. Why wouldn't you put actual historians in charge of the National Archives? I, I just don't understand this at all. I just don't understand it. Um, oh, gosh, I did it again. went off on a rant. But let me just tell you, according to MSN and the uh, that uh, staffers are concerned in the Biden White House, they would rather their boss not speak in public than endure another gaffe, according to a new report in Politico. Um, this is exactly what we talked about during the presidential campaign, how they kept him hiding in the basement. He was very lucky that the pandemic occurred because it gave them an excuse to keep him off the campaign trail. And because he wasn't on the campaign trail, he seemed more presidential than Trump, who was constantly talking, and the media was constantly talking how an idiot he was, and then Joe Biden just didn't say anything. And so he seemed like the adult in the room in comparison. But they're doing it again because, like I mentioned earlier, Biden keeps coming out and making ridiculous comments. So now they're trying to keep him from going out and speaking because he keeps because he keeps going off script and making flubs and and saying ridiculous things the president mistakenly referred to michigan governor gretchen whitmaner as jennifer during an event in august 
And in March, he said President Harris when referring to Vice President Kamala Harris. And on Tuesday, Biden asserted during a briefing about the damage incurred from Hurricane Ida that tornadoes are called something else now. Quote, the members of Congress know from their colleagues in Congress that, uh, you know, that looks uh, like a tornado. I mean, they don't call them that anymore. That that hit the crops and wetlands in the middle of the country in Iowa and Nevada. It's just across the board, Biden said at a press conference. So everyone's making fun of him and they think he needs to resign. So now, anyway, his aides are saying they're going to try to pull him back so he's not out there making ridiculous comments anymore in public. So they're going to try to keep him from doing press events very often. This is exactly the reason why we don't need a 78-year-old man who's got dementia out there speaking for the United States. I know that Trump was not a great orator. I know that he made flubs. I know that he made mistakes on occasion. And I was quick to point them out among my friends. Uh, I don't, wasn't, wasn't doing a podcast at that time. But uh, this man, this, this Joe Biden, is uh, takes the cake. I mean, this guy, this guy is, uh, you can't trust anything he says because you don't know. And I'm not saying he's a liar. I'm saying, I don't think he knows what he's talking about half the time. I think he just talks and he doesn't know what he's saying. I think he's, he opens his mouth and words come out. And I think he's just as surprised as the rest of us at what he just said. And his aides probably have their jaws on the floor after he says something because they're like, oh my goodness, how are we going to clean this up? We got to keep this man from coming out and speaking too often in public unless we have a script for him to read. Um, so anyway, that's our show for today. I went a little bit over, but uh, hopefully it was worth it. Hopefully you don't, it doesn't bother you too much. But all right. Well, have a great week, everyone. This, uh, this week is September 11th. Um, be sure on Saturday to give some thought to the men and women who lost their lives. 20 years ago, uh, maybe we'll do a special show next week about the 20th anniversary. Um, but anyway, uh, until then, bye, everyone.